Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host for this ad space along with my 48, I mean, 72 hour challenge friend, Ricky. We're going to bring you a few of the folks that you might want to pay attention to. These are the companies that allow us to bring in some really cool guests into the studio, get them on the phone, share their stories with you, the listeners. So I think these are the folks you may want to pay attention to. Now, the first company that we're going to bring up is none other than our good friends over at Black Rifle Coffee. They're located right over in Salt Lake City. Ricky's got a thing for Matt Best, but we're not talking about that apparently. She hit me last time that we uh, that I said that. So Ricky's going to tell you a little bit about the coffee club that she belongs to that you might want to check out. Hey guys, so Black Rifle Coffee Company. I have been a member of their coffee club since May or June, and I love it. Every month I get a bag or two sent to my house, don't have to go to the store. You can go online and adjust which kind of coffees you want. I always go with the Silencer Smooth or the Hazelnut, but it is so good. I love just having it conveniently on my doorstep each week or each month. Um, and then the coupon code for that is CRAFT15. It's a great club to be a part of, and you can never have too much coffee. And a couple things about this coupon code. It's good for 15% off, but it excludes new releases, the bundles, the ready-to-drink stuff. Um, it's a one-time use code, one-time purchase, and uh, for the first time club order. Now, guys, Black Rifle Coffee, they're good folks. Give Evan and his crew over there some love. Please hook them up with some of your support. Now, another sponsor that makes this totally possible are our friends over at Anthem Snacks. Anthem makes legit beef jerky. Um, this is the type of stuff that you're going to open it up and you're gonna be like, okay, I'm just going to have one piece and that's never going to happen. So if you guys use the coupon code fieldcraft10, you're good for 10% off of your order. And the website for Anthem Beef Jerky is anthemsnacks.com. Again, use that coupon code fieldcraft10, you're going to get 10% off. Now this next sponsor, before we jump into this podcast with Kevin Owens and Charles Von Bibber, this next sponsor is a company that I've been good friends for a very long time. Ricky is super, super jealous that I have a whole bunch of their gear and she doesn't yet. She's actually been trying to borrow some of my stuff and I'm like, nope, not happening. Just go out and buy your own. Come on, lady. Um, so the next sponsor is Kafaru and Kafaru is located in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. They're phenomenal people. Uh, it's run by Aaron Snyder, a good friend of ours, and Aaron's partner, Chad, who lets us use the land in uh, Spanish Fork for all of our awesome classes. Guys, Kafaru website is uh, kafaru.net, and they make some seriously cool backpacks, shelters, sleeping bags, pretty good clothing, and they've got an amazing social media presence. You should check them out. What's up, Ricky? Yeah, that. what do you have, the doobie sack that's in the back of your car? I've got the I've got the doobie, the whoopie, I've got the slick bag. Oh, that yeah. saved me at the end of our 72 hour challenge when you came to get me. I was freezing, wrapped myself up in that thing. It was amazing. And I'm gonna purchase one for myself very, very soon. And I'm glad she said purchase it instead of steal it. I've almost lost my whoopee to like three <laughs> ex-girlfriends. Um the Whoopi is, is one of those things that you just put it on, it's got great draping characteristics and qualities. So you put it on, it feels like you're getting hugged by like this warm angelic embrace it's totally cheesy the way i just described it but <laughs> yeah probably okay um hey it's what you get you know when you're traveling around doing awesome stuff all right guys uh we're gonna get into this podcast this is with none other than our favorite irishman kevin owens and charles von bibber here we go 
Welcome back to the Field Crop Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. And today uh, is a real honor for me. I'm sitting down with Chuck Van Bibber, who is a war veteran from Vietnam. Um, served in Vietnam in 1968 into 69, which was a, a very, very difficult and volatile time in Vietnam, uh, just post Tet Offensive, right? You got there yep. right after the Tet Offensive. So, I, I mean, I grew up in Ireland, but I grew up watching, you know, documentaries about Vietnam, movies about it, reading books, you know, the Vietnam, the 10,000 Day War, that documentary. I, I remember watching that over and over and over again. Very, very um, fascinated with it. Uh, watch uh, reading books, um, and and it's it's uh, it's a war that was kind of a, a lot a lot of brave people fought there, and and they they almost got pushed aside with with the the negativity of of the Vietnam War and uh, the fall of Saigon, which we were we're seeing again in Afghanistan, and we'll talk about that later on. But uh, it's a real honor for me to sit down and and, and have a conversation with you. And, uh, you know, hear your story. And, uh, yeah, your book is called uh, Valentine's Day, A Marine Looks Back. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And y- you wrote it in 2013? Uh, I finished it in to- late 20, uh, 2013 and brought it out in 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, my whole purpose in writing the well, it was multifaceted. First of all, I wanted to honor the guys that didn't come back, mm-hmm. tell their stories. Yeah. Uh, secondly, I wanted to tell the American people what that war was truly like. Um, I have read other books about Vietnam. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, they like to talk about, oh, I grew up like this, or I grew up poor, or whatever. And then uh, then they go on, oh, well, I was in boot camp, and I did this, that, and the next. It was, it's, they're, they're all me books. Mm-hmm. And then they talk a little bit about Vietnam, and and then that's the end of the book. Mm. And my book isn't that way. You don't know about my past. You don't know about uh, boot camp. Mm -hmm. The book starts when I had to go to Vietnam. Okay. And it was a very unique situation. It was right after the Tet Offensive started Mm -hmm. in January 31st of 68. And I was still in staging battalion to mm-hmm. go over as a replacement. And um, one day I'm standing in formation. I was a, I had received the 0331 MOS, which is a grunt machine gunner, and uh, actually done quite well in machine gun school. And uh, I could tell you other stories about that, but let's mm-hmm. get on with this. Um, so I'm standing in formation. The sergeant comes up and says, we need some volunteers. You, 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 and you, pack your seat you bag. You just volunteered. <laughs> you just volunteered. Yeah. And uh, oh, dark 30 in the morning, I found myself with Fox Company, 2nd Battalion, 27th Marines, uh, issued an M60. I was the number one gunner in the, in the second squad in the machine gun section, assigned mm-hmm. to 2nd Platoon. Uh, Zero six thirty that morning, we were on a C one forty one heading to Vietnam. Okay, when when I normally do these, I like to go back and get the get the context story. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to do that, we'll just go oh, to Vietnam. Yeah, you know? I don't care. Um, I, I I'm always interested in in like uh, you know, people's you know their upbringing and and what kind of drove them into the military and 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 <laughs> made, made them kind of move make that move you know oh, well you're gonna laugh at this one and everybody that hears this well 
So I, I grew up on a ranch in Texas, yeah. up in the Texas Hill Country. And it was a small ranch, pretty much more a subsistence place than anything else. Um, but there were five of us. I was the oldest, and it was the best time in my life. Uh, I was born in 46. Uh, I was there in the 50s and the early 60s, and it was just, it was absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. so, and I was very naive, you know. I, I didn't know anything. I lived on the ranch and went to school, and that was it. Mm -hmm. So uh, after I graduated high school, I went to college in, in San Antonio, Texas, St. Mary's, and did a couple of years there in college, and it just wasn't wasn't getting it. I was still, I was a fish out of water, didn't know what, and then, you know, I I made good grades. I've I've been blessed with being able to do that kind of stuff. But uh, so here I am in my uh, end of my uh, sophomore year. And um, I'm working at a uh, lake, um, flipping burgers, working in the kitchen, cleaning the swimming pool, whatever, pumping gas. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness there was one time uh, uh, this boat came in it was four young girls on it and everything else all in bikinis uh, they came in too fast I had to hit the stop the front of the boat from hitting the dock and they all fell forward and I go oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh, but I had a real hard time getting a girlfriend for some reason probably <laughs> because I was shy and naive mm -hmm. Uh, that changed. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I see this Marine come in, and he's in dress blues. He's just back from Vietnam. Got his ribbon bar and his dress blues. He's got a girl on his right arm, a girl on his left arm. There's one trailing in behind him. Mm -hmm. I go, man, that's what I need to do. Mm. Yeah. So I went down and uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps. Wow. The Marines are good at that. Yeah. They're good at and that. I, yeah. Uh, you know, I knew nothing about the Marine Corps. Yeah. I didn't know really anything about Vietnam. Like I said, I was kind of naive and mm -hmm. sheltered and just living like a cowboy. I loved it. What, what, that was probably like uh, 67, that maybe? Was, uh, right. Mm, yeah. I enlisted in the Marine Corps in 67. Okay, yeah. And um, went through boot camp. Uh, I did well in boot camp. I, did you go uh, East Coast or West Coast? Uh, camp Pendleton. Okay. Uh, San Diego mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. boot camp. I... Uh, I actually uh, either tied or broke, I don't remember, the range record for uh, people in boot camp with the rifle range. Uh, shot a two, 237 out of 250 mm -hmm. with open sights on an M14, on a M14 that's rifle. That's a great rifle. That's a great rifle. Oh, yeah. You know? That's yeah, my favorite. It really that's, is. That's yeah. my to-go-to weapon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so I, I was awarded a medal, a Leatherneck Award. I was the high shooter for the whole series. And uh, someone approached me and said, boy, you're going to, you'd be a good sniper. We're going to send you to sniper school. I said, okay. And uh, that program had just started up back in 67 in Vietnam with uh, um, uh, Land, I don't remember his rank. He was an officer major, maybe, mm -hmm. and Carlos Hathcock mm -hmm. in '67. Mm -hmm. So, um, so they they tried to start it back up in the states too, and um, they said first you got to go take a physical. I said okay. 
So I went and took a physical, and they turned me down because of my glasses. Mm. You know, Wing Corps sniper can't wear glasses. Mm. So uh, <laughs> oh, then uh, next thing I know, because I had two years of college, they were going to send me to OCS and said, boy, you'd be a good officer. I was going to ask about that. When, right. Normally when you have right. co college, they kind of push you yeah. that way, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, and uh, I have to take a physical, which I did, and they turned me down because of my glasses. Marine Corps officers can't wear glasses. Really? You know? yeah. mm. So anyway, they uh, sent me to machine gun school. I excelled in machine gun school. And, uh, and it isn't, you know, people have a misconception about machine guns. They think, oh, they're out there. They just pull the trigger and spray the area and kill everything in sight. <laughs> That's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. First of all, you and an M60 machine gun, you'll overheat the barrel mm -hmm. and it'll it'll melt on you. Mm -hmm. So you can you should only fire in three to five round bursts. And then you've got ammo to consider. You know, yeah. you're only going to have so much ammo with you in a firefight, mm -hmm. and, and you better have some left over when it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I, I can get into that later. It's funny how the, the Marine Corps kind of pioneered that um, fighting around the machine gun. The machine gun almost became its own entity, and everybody else kind of maneuvered around that machine gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I didn't know that that like a machine gun was a, a separate MOS within. Yep. Within the Marine Corps, within yep. the infantry, right? Yeah. I don't know if it's still like that. Yeah, it, it is. is. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's smart, yeah. They, the, uh, I think, the 0331 MOS includes the 50 caliber machine gun, mm -hmm. uh, and at that time, the M60 machine gun. Mm. And nowadays, it's everything from the Deuce on down to the squad automatic weapon. Yeah, the 240 yeah. and 249. When I came in the Army, we still had... Uh, the M60 machine gun. Mm -hmm. We're still using, we're actually still using the, the grease gun as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we're still using Isn't that. Isn't that 60 a wonderful weapon? Yeah, oh, it's great. It, it it's fantastic. It yeah, really it's fantastic. Is. It's funny that the Carlos Hathcock, um, there's an award given by the, the National Defense Industry mm -hmm. um, called the Carlos Hathcock Award. And it's, it's, it's given to people who have made a significant contribution to the sniper community within the mm -hmm. military. And Carlos Hathcock was the first one to get that award. Mm -hmm. I got that award last year. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. What an honor. Yeah, what an honor. I love yeah, that. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, so being a machine gunner in the Marine Corps is kind of a dangerous job, right? Because <laughs> machine guns, and I know from personal experience, are bullet magnets. That's yes. what the enemy yeah. need, want to take out first, yeah. right? There were, there were three main targets in Vietnam. Uh, officers, radio men, and machine gunners, and not necessarily in that order. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I guarantee you... Uh, if we'd be on patrol, say a platoon-sized patrol or company patrol, and we'd get hit, the first order that would come down the line is guns up. Yep. And they that meant the machine gunners had to get up, mm -hmm. stand up as we're being fired upon. Get online. Yep. Uh, yeah. Run. Yep. Not walk. Run, uh, carrying all this equipment and everything to the spot where this fire was coming from. Mm -hmm. And then start laying down a base of fire on the enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, once we opened up with that gun, and of course every fifth round's a tracer, uh, it was like you were in um, honeybee heaven. Mm. All of a sudden, all these little bees that were flying around gathered together and were coming at you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because you're doing so much damage, that grazing oh, fire in the yeah. jungle, penetrating. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, 
How long was the machine gun portion of, of like boot camp? Do you remember? Uh, well, it wasn't boot camp. Oh, it was no. an extra. Yeah, yeah. it was during mm -hmm. uh, infantry training, mm -hmm. and then everybody finished ITR, and then they went to their specialty training, um, particularly if you were weapons personnel like machine guns or mortars or something like that. Then you went to that school, and then after that, uh, they sent us through a uh, – it was kind of like a course to get ready for Vietnam, more or less. Mm -hmm. And it was the funkiest thing. They had, you know, they tried to tell you about booby traps and punji pits and, and a little mock-up POW camp. That was funny. Mm -hmm. So they took us all and put us in this, this like, hooches there in Camp Pendleton. And they said, okay, your job is to escape and evade. And if you can get from this place to this other place, and they gave us a map and a compass, and then at, without getting detected or recaptured, then you'll be free and then you can go on your way. You can go on liberty, whatever you want to do. Mm. So uh, I'm pretty good at that. Mm. You know, I grew up hunting in Texas and snooping and pooping on the deer and the rest of the critters and mm -hmm. everything. So I... You know, I'm, I just felt natural doing that, and it was no no problem for me. Mm -hmm. But I tell you what, there you were guys a lot from the of, city, city these boys, city boys, <laughs> man, they didn't stand a chance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So then from there, it led to a staging battalion to go over as a replacement. Mm, did they teach you anything about living in the jungle and and like the hardships of the jungle? Um no. they didn't. You had to learn that in country, huh? Yeah. 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 Um, so when you when you shipped well, out, well, I mean, they tried. Yeah, they, in Camp Pendleton, they'd have us out bivouacked in pup tents. In uh, well, at that time, it was winter mm -hmm. in uh, um, November, December, January of nineteen sixty-eight, uh, and uh, I remember being just as cold as could be. Of course, I'm I'm a warm. Texan. climate person <laughs> and uh but i never will forget the smell of that uh diesel fuel they were burning in those stoves and those tents mm -hmm. and uh take me right back there every time i smell it yeah yeah um yeah so so january 68 was a very it was a crucial turning point in the war and yes. and Again, um, the media and politicians, and let's not get into that just yet, but um, in hindsight, like after the Tet Offensive, we had broken the back of the NVA. They were oh, decimated. Yeah. Yeah. We killed so many of them, uh, you guys. Um, but but again, the media and, and uh, the, well, the politicians. let me tell you about the Tet Offensive. There were actually three Tet Offenses in 1968. There was the main one up in uh, Way City, mm -hmm. in that vicinity, in the Perfume River. Mm -hmm. And there were tons of NVA that came across the border. And uh, um, uh, uh, the 5th Marines and others were there. And later on in my tour, I wound up becoming a member of the 5th Marines. Mm -hmm. Way, get, Way we'll, was, we'll Way was a difficult battle, right? It was a city yes. battle in an ancient city. That, that, yeah. yeah. But, we, we kicked their tail. Yes, absolutely. Yes, we did. Mm -hmm. But the actual Tet Offensives uh, were not an NVA war. Mm. I mean, they came across up by the border. Okay. But 
it was really the effort of the Viet Cong right. to show themselves and prove themselves and establish themselves as a great fighting force. Mm -hmm. And they got waxed. They did. Every place they went, mm -hmm. they got waxed. We, we beat them. We beat them in, uh, in January, February, into March. We beat them in May, and we beat them again in August. Right. Yeah. May and, and was a mini-tet, and August was a mini-tet. In in uh, in case on they were trying to repeat what they'd done to the French in Dien Bien Phu, yeah, and but you know they didn't count on American firepower, right? And American you know warriors and just bombing the crap out of them, and they they must have took a ton of casualties. Well, the <laughs> what most of our enemies do is uh, particularly in that era, started in World War II in the Pacific and then again in Korea and then in Vietnam. Everybody underestimated the U.S. fighting man. Mm -hmm. They thought that, oh, well, life is so easy in the United States. You know, yeah. these guys are a bunch of candy. And they don't, you know, they're not going to have the fortitude to mm -hmm. put up with these living conditions and the fighting and mm -hmm. the the horrors and everything else. Mm -hmm. And uh, as far as the Marine Corps concerns, uh, that's our lifeblood. Yeah. You know? the, the American, like I remember when I came in the infantry first and I talked to an American guy and he was talking, he said that exact same thing. He said, you know, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor because their image of America, of America was these surfers on the beach in California. Yeah. And he was like, they didn't know they had people like me chained in a basement in Alabama well, ready right. to go. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now the American fighter, when unleashed, is is devastating like yes. so good yes. yeah yeah and you know uh just a, kind of a flashback to when i came back people would ask me uh, what was the worst part of the vietnam war and i stupid me i was being honest <laughs> and i said well i tell you uh the worst part was i loved it yeah and <laughs> they they looked at me in shock and like who, who the hell are you you know mm -hmm. uh but it gets in your blood, and uh, I don't know if uh, it's uh, if our our European ancestry, um, particularly from the Scandinavian countries mm -hmm. or the Irish or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But brother, you get our blood up, and yeah. and you're gonna pay. Did you? Did you? And I, I know you did, but you got to the point when you're there, you're like, this is where I'm supposed to be. This this makes sense to me. I, I was like that in Iraq. No. I was like that in Iraq where no. I was like, this is this makes sense. It wasn't like that. No. 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 Okay. I knew nothing about Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, to get back to leaving to go to Vietnam, mm. um, President uh, Johnson got all shook up when the Tet Offensive started. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, he wanted to send more troops to Vietnam immediately. Well, there was the 27th Marine Regiment that was available at Camp Pendleton who had been called up because they were disbanded after World War II, who'd been called back into service as a basically a training regiment. And those that, of us that were in the regiment in training uh, were wearing stateside utilities and black leather combat boots and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Metal canteens from World War II, etc. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, the 27th Marines got a written notice that they had three days to get it together and go to Vietnam. 
That's why I got mm-hmm. packed my sea bag. Uh, my company, Fox 227, was the first company into Vietnam uh, spearheading the movement of the regiment into the country. Mm-hmm. When we landed in Da Nang, we got rocketed and mortared when we landed. We came off that plane, uh, full combat gear, ammo, grenades, everything, and uh, ready to fight. They loaded us up on uh, deuce and a halves, and were going to take us to our compound. On the way, we got sniper fire. I had the M60 with the bipods down on the top of the cab of the truck. And uh, had to return fire. Welcome to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't know anything. Mm. I you know I, I knew no, I was totally ignorant. So, so your your training piece did not prepare no. you for what was coming. <clears throat> no, that was uh, that was all OJT. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I remember the red dirt. Yeah. It's a red clay, powdery dirt, and I, I even wrote a letter home, and made a thumbprint of the dirt on the letter. Yeah, uh, yeah. trying to show the folks what a nasty place it was. Yeah, the, I, I know your letters were, were very influential in writing your book later on. You know, yes. how, often, how often did you write home? <laughs> well, I started out. I think uh, I think it was probably writing maybe once a week mm-hmm. when I started out. Mm. But um, the book will show how uh, slowly but surely the number of letters I wrote home got fewer and fewer Mm -hmm. and fewer. And I think at one point my parents got worried and contacted the Marine Corps and wanted to know if I was still alive. No. Uh, Especially after they got word that I'd been wounded, which I didn't even know about till I got home. Mm. And... um, but I had changed so much, you know. Um, there's a picture in the book early on of me standing there with the M60 machine gun, and I I looked like a fairly reasonable human being, young man. Uh, I was in good shape, and um, I still had something of a smile on my face. And mm-hmm. oh, look at me, you know. And I'd been in country maybe a month, and. Uh, and then later, and you, as you look in the pictures, you'll see a picture of me six months later. I was cold, mm-hmm. hard. Mm. I had lost all my emotions. I didn't care if I lived or died. All I wanted to do is bring my men home mm-hmm. if I could. Uh, and that wasn't always successful, mm. but I did my best. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just had a meeting with one of my guys from the 5th Marines who credits me with saving his life. Um, really nice young guy. He was 18 at the time. I was 21. I turned 22 in Vietnam. Mm. And um, I was a squad leader. And I can get into that story later, too. But um, it was tough. Mm-hmm. It was tough. And it got to the point where, uh, like I said, all I wanted to do was protect my men. And the hardest, the hardest thing I ever did in Vietnam was go to the meat locker, big, where Graves Registration in Da Nang. And I had to go there to identify the body of one of my machine gunners. Mm. And uh, so they took me in the meat locker. He was laying on slabs of ice. 
and they pulled the tarp or whatever it was off of him. They, they hadn't even closed his eyes, and he was looking at me with like, what the hell? Mm. And um, I had to identify his body, and that, that, that was hard to take. But, mm. you know, uh, even that, um, you know, they, they like to show in the movies guys crying over their buddies that got killed. Mm -hmm. like, Boy, that's bullshit. Hmm. You know, you get to the point, well, okay, you know, we're all dead to begin mm -hmm. with. So someone gets killed, they get killed. You you go on. Was that the general attitude that we're already dead? We're just going to drive on and, and yeah. do our job? Yeah. Um, there was nobody crying over the dead. Mm -hmm. the, I, I, That's I, a Hollywood I, thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think soldiers put it away somewhere. Yeah. It comes up later on, right? They, they oh, stow yeah. it away. Yeah. Um, yeah, so when when you get in country and you're a brand new young machine gunner, um, you go to your platoon. How was your leadership? Your squad leaders, your your platoon sergeant. Your okay, and uh, right, we had we started out. I think he was a warrant officer who was our platoon. Remember, the twenty seventh Marines had to cobble together mm -hmm. these combat units. Yeah, it was an ad hoc unit, huh? Well, mm -hmm. ours wasn't. Ours all had combat. MOSs in it, but later on, other companies, particularly in 3-5, 3rd Battalion, uh, 5th Marine, uh, 27th Marines, they were like office pogues and cooks wow. mm -hmm. and everything else thrown into an infantry role. Wow. Um, but um, oh, where was I going? I, I forgot. I've... I was asking you about your leadership. Oh, yeah. So we were at this uh, bridge. And this is within three months of being in country, maybe four. I mean, not once, weeks. And uh, I had my M60 uh, on, on this uh, bunker. And our job was to provide firepower for any enemies that may be coming up and down the river and protect the convoys that were going across the road. So um, one day, um, we get the word that uh, my machine gun, my machine gun squad leader, and an assault man, and a mortarman, were all weapons platoon, and they had known each other before we went to Vietnam. And the youngest guy was actually 17 when he went to Vietnam and just turned 18, mm. lied about his age. Well, they were missing. So it was a big scramble. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And um, so there were patrols sent out, left, right, and everything else. Well, then the rumor mill started, which was more fact than fiction, that somebody had seen them. We had a like a John boat uh, there to patrol the river in this boat. Mm -hmm. And uh, they got a hold of the boat and went upstream uh, to, uh, there were some naked girls up there, Vietnamese girls, uh, looked like doing laundry or something like that. And young guys being what they were, they went up to check it out. Well, they never came back. And it was about, uh, Three days later, my squad leader, 
And uh, I'm not going to use this name in the podcast. I'll tell you why in a minute. But my squad leader's body came floating down the river, um, almost totally unrecognizable, had been in the water long enough to bloat up like a big balloon. Uh, when we pulled the body out of the water, the um, skin and everything just peeled off the body, you know, mm -hmm. it was all saturated. And um, so anyway, we got him up into a poncho, and um, then they sent the body to Da Nang for an autopsy. And uh, our company commander got us all together afterwards and read us the autopsy report which I don't know if he legally or whatever should have done that, mm -hmm. but he did it in order to teach the rest of us. And uh, these guys, this, my squad leader, had been tortured unmercifully. I mean, and some of it I didn't put in the book because I couldn't verify it, and mm -hmm. the book is all absolutely honest and true, and if I couldn't verify it, I didn't put it in there. But uh, he, uh, he had his eyes gouged out. He had his private parts cut off. He was bamboo slivers under his uh, toenails and his fingernails. He had his tongue ripped out. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I mean, they almost skinned him alive. I don't know. And um, then they finally uh, shot him in the head. But uh, he was a mess. Mm. So... Um, how did how did that change the platoon's attitude? If 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 I call him a hero, you yeah. know why I call him a hero? Why? Because he put a, a metal rod up our spine. Yeah, we were all little young boot camp people, me mm -hmm. and naive cowboy out of Texas, and I became a man that day. Mm. I'm telling you what, um, we stood tall, and we all vowed we will never ever get captured and we will never ever leave anybody behind right period mm -hmm. end of story uh to death do us part torturing the enemy like that it's, it's a psychological tactic to try to get in your head but it's a double-edged sword because yeah. it has that effect too yeah it has, especially right, on I'll never surrender yeah i'll yeah. never let you yeah yeah, yeah. especially oh, yeah. with marines yeah yeah um yeah that 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 is a uh, that's devastating to morale yeah, and it, but it does it does harm. The reason you. I uh, and I don't have his name in the book. I just call him my squad leader because mm -hmm. when I wrote the book, I thought I needed uh, his family's permission to use his name. Yeah, particularly under the circumstances. Mm -hmm. So I managed to get a hold of his sister, and uh, I asked her to use his name in the book, and she says, "Well, what's it about?" I said, "Oh, ma'am." <laughs> I can't tell you over the phone. Mm. She says, well, send it to me an email. I said, okay, uh, I'll send it to you, uh, but uh, you're not going to like it. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I did that, and it was about two weeks later, she called me back. And the first thing she said was, I don't know why you're lying about my brother, but I have a letter right here from the Marine Corps mm -hmm. that says he died while on patrol. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm sorry, ma'am. That's not what happened. Mm -hmm. And I was there. Mm. She said, well, you can't use his name in your book. Because, mm. see, he was kind of the leader of these three guys. Yeah. And 
I'm not putting any fault on him, but uh, he uh, he was responsible. Yeah. yeah. And he was married. Mm-hmm. He had a child. And mm-hmm. I've, his uh, son has contacted me in the past year. Uh, we haven't really gotten to communicate much together, but he wanted to know about his father, and I told him about the book. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so to honor her and her family, I said, all right, I won't use his name in the book, so I just call him my squad leader. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, t- talk me through like a, if there was such a thing as a typical day um, in, in on patrol or in, in the jungle or... Well, for us, we spent very little time in any base. Almost all our time was out in the jungle. And at that time, we were operating mainly in platoon size operations. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, well, let me back up a minute and tell you what leads to what I did during those operations. Uh, first couple of weeks, we're out on patrol. This uh, squad leader had taken a patrol out. So he stops us all for a break and he says, uh, looks at everybody and he goes, uh, I hate to say this, guys, but I'm lost. <laughs> okay. Does <laughs> uh, anybody here think they can get us back? <laughs> oh, my God. That's not what you want to hear from the leader. No, yeah. no, you know. And uh, and at the time, I was just, uh, hadn't even made Lance Corporal yet. I was still a PFC, you know, number one machine gunner in the squad. But So everybody looks at each other and uh, nobody wants to volunteer. The last thing you want to do in the mm-hmm. service is volunteer for anything. Mm-hmm. But I got tired of waiting, so finally I says, okay, I'll take us back. And everybody looked at me like I was crazy. Like, who are you? Mm. But hey, I'm a country boy, right? Mm. I mean, I'm a cowboy from Texas. I've been out hunting and going through the woods all by myself half my life. Mm. So uh, I knew where I was, Mm. so I took everybody back. After that, everybody wanted me on their patrols. And... um, as it turned out, after my squad leader was killed, uh, a little bit later, I became a squad leader of the machine gun squad and had to give up the 60, carrying M16, which I hated. Did you? I hated yeah. that thing. And uh, I, like a plastic I can tell toy, you a right? horror story about <laughs> that thing later on. Yeah. But uh, so I became squad leader. And then um, wasn't too long after that, we're out running these platoon patrols. And my platoon commander, um, who was a new platoon commander, they fired the one um, from the incident at the bridge. Okay, yeah. And this new platoon commander was wonderful. He was a Mustanger, had already had a tour in Vietnam in 66. Is that what a Mustanger is? Sorry, is that? uh, That's that's an uh, enlisted man that becomes an officer. Oh, okay, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that should be a standard that you have to be enlisted. And he had been uh, a radio man with uh, Force Recon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was a... So you're lucky to get him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lucky to get Mm -hmm. him. And he knew a lot, and he he taught me a lot and Mm -hmm. everybody else, which I I went on to practice even after they went home. Mm. Um, So... He decided that I should be in the rotation leading night patrols and night ambushes. Because mm-hmm. that's what we did. 
Batoons would go out. We would go out. We would set up someplace. And thank goodness for Lieutenant Jones with his experience. Uh, his methodology was you go out, you set up, you eat chow, whatever. And then around midnight, you very quietly pack up all your gear and move a couple of hard, hundred yards away to a, a spot that had already been scattered out to begin with mm -hmm. and move over there. And more often than not, shortly after we would make that move, our old position would be mortared. Right. Because everybody had eyes on you. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I started running night patrols and night ambushes. Uh, and then I ran them forever. Mm. Did, did you guys have any night, night vision gear at all? Yeah. No. You didn't have the big tri-light, the big... Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, we yeah. did later on, uh, and this is when I was with the 5th Marines, we did wind up with a starlight scope. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. That thing that I'll, makes I'll noise you, when you turn it on, right? I'll, yeah. uh, I'll tell you, there's a funny story about that later on when I was in the 5th Marines. But anyway, uh, if you ever want to... Uh, if you ever want to test yourself and find out what you're made of and see how much you can take, go out in the de deepest, darkest, scariest place in the woods you can think of and sit there. Mm -hmm. Just sit there. You don't mm. have to be in a war or anything. Just sit there. Mm. And you're going to start feeling kind of creepy because you don't know this place. You don't know the animals that are around you. You don't know if there's humans out there. I mean, we have people here in the, in the, in the forest, up, uh, Pisgah National Forest and, and other than the Great Smokies, mm -hmm. uh, uh, killing people. Mm. I mean, they. I mean, people will be out there hiking or camping, and they'll get killed by some crazy that's in mm -hmm. the forest. Yeah, it's wow. here. Yeah. So anyway, do that, and then imagine that you're on an ambush, and there's somebody out there with a weapon. That if you make the wrong move, you're dead. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in the same way you grew up hunting and fishing yeah. and all that, right. the Viet Cong grew up in those jungles. Yes. They knew them really well. They knew how to maneuver. They yeah. knew how to navigate. Right. Yeah. But one thing I learned, they couldn't see any better than I could in exactly. the dark. Exactly, yeah. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. And probably worse because I don't think they had the carotene and all that stuff yeah. that's good for them. Yeah. Um, smells were a different story. They could smell us, but we could smell them. Mm. And... Uh, and the main thing was to try and fake them out. I, uh, I was very successful on many ambushes. And uh, that was because I, had, I wasn't the typical Marine patrol leader. Uh, I'd take my patrol out. Instead of going to the checkpoint right away, uh, I would go partway and stop mm -hmm. and tell everybody to take a break and set up a mini ambush because mm. they might be coming up behind us. Mm -hmm. And I would, 
I would do odd things on these patrols. Yeah. And so you don't establish a pattern. Right. right? Yeah. Right. And yeah, a, lot of, a lot of the things we learn in the military now are lessons learned from guys mm-hmm. like you in Vietnam, you know? Um, stop, look, listen, smell, right? Before yeah. you move, you know? Where, where are you setting these ambushes on? on are, are they on trails, like paths, or are they actually on? There were various places. I looked for... Uh, for possible or probable avenues of movement. Mm-hmm. Um, they liked to move in ditches. Mm-hmm. They did not like to skyline themselves, so they would be along the edge of the woods, right. particularly if there was a drainage ditch uh, off of a rice paddy or something that they could, uh, yeah. they wouldn't be silhouetted and they wouldn't be out in the rice paddy and they could make yeah. their way and you're they gonna, do you're gonna get channelized a certain way right a natural line of drift right they're, they're going to well yeah. yeah and in fact one ambush where we killed a chinaman yeah. uh caught him coming up one of those kind of ditches right along the tree line and i had the gun that was a interesting trick there i uh i had taken the patrol out this was in the fifth marines i had taken the patrol out and then deviated off the path of the patrol route and went around the back of this village and then came back around to the other side of the village right in the corner of the jungle. Mm. So I had rice paddy on two sides, so there's nobody coming across there we couldn't handle. Mm -hmm. And then I had the the patrol set up, uh, faced inward toward the jungle, and uh, the machine gunner right on the corner, facing down this ditch, this big, mm-hmm. deep ditch. Mm. Well, they didn't expect us to be there. That's a mistake they made. Yeah, yeah. So I, d- I did a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I didn't, uh, I never fought out of anger uh, or frustration. I always uh, I pretty much kept my head and, uh, and dealt with it like it was a job. A mm-hmm. job I needed to do well if I wanted to bring my men home. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but do that day in, yeah. day out for 13 months. Yeah, it's a lot. I yeah. mean, it's a lifetime, yeah. Right. I, uh, like I said, I got hit the day I, I got there, and we got hit the day I left. Yeah. There were zappers on the wire trying to overrun the Anwak combat base. <clears throat> and I had in charge of a section of the line, and um, <laughs> I'll tell you the story now. I'm I'm in charge of this section of the line, and all of a sudden I hear this wee rocket, <laughs> and I start hollering, "Incoming! Incoming! Hit the deck!" And I get mm-hmm. down, and I fall on the on the ground, and everything else, and I'm waiting for these mortar rounds to come in. Mm-hmm. And next thing I know, I, I hear a bunch of people laughing. So I get up and I look around, and these guys are standing there laughing at me. I said, what the hell are you laughing at? And they said, oh, what are you doing down on the, on the ground like that? I said, didn't you hear those mortars coming in? And they said, what mortars? There were no mortars. It was a mule. <laughs> and a mule is a like a little go-kart thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a really high-pitched engine on it that mm-hmm. was used to haul ammunition and stuff like that right. around. And it makes that real high-pitched sound. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, mm-hmm. I bit the dust on that one. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you said you got wounded. You want to tell me about that? 
Mm, it was really nothing. Yeah. It was just uh, caught some shrapnel and all. Mm -hmm. Did was there a lot of indirect fire like that on your base? Was it a no? It was no base. I oh, said I didn't. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, this yeah. This is out yeah. in the jungle. We're set up. So you set up at like a platoon, like temporary fire base, like a patrol base mm -hmm. up, up on high ground, I assume, with good... Well, it's wherever it was, whichever was more uh, conducive to what we had to do. Yeah. You, you know, if the enemy thinks that you're going to go to the high ground every time you get mm -hmm. uh, hit or, or whatever... Um, they're going to be on the high ground waiting on you, yeah. aren't they? Mm -hmm. If, if they don't know where you're going to go or when you're going to go and they can't figure you out, then you stand a, a good chance of success. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. Mm -hmm. And I did that with uh, Lieutenant Jones and the 27th Marines. And then I did that myself when I was in the 5th Marines. Okay. And uh, So in hindsight, like after your 13 months, um. Do you feel like the, the tactics that you guys employed were effective? Oh, yeah. Do you think your equipment was, oh, yeah. was what it needed to be? By the end be? of 68, we had them beat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they were they were toast. Mm -hmm. the, the Viet Cong was a shadow of them for, their former selves. Mm -hmm. um, the NBA, they were getting their butts kicked too. Mm -hmm. um, if, and I think in history, somebody requested uh, maybe they didn't. Maybe it was just a, a wish on our part. But if he'd have put all the Marines in Vietnam online mm -hmm. from one end of the country or the other mm -hmm. up in the northern part, up in up in I Corps, mm -hmm. and turned us loose and said, "Okay, you guys go to Saigon and end this." Uh, mm -hmm. Not Saigon, Hanoi. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Hanoi. Hanoi, yeah. Go to Hanoi and end this thing. Mm -hmm. That war would have been over within another six months. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, we asked no quarter and we gave no quarter. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I heard a story that a, uh, um, a Viet, uh, Vietnamese, North Vietnamese general, I think he was an NVA, could have been Viet Cong. Anyway, supposedly put this letter out and off. Fence against the army. Put this, <laughs> put this letter out to all the troops in, under his command. And in the letter it said that if at all possible, avoid contact with the U.S. Marines. Mm -hmm. That it would be better to take on a company of U.S. soldiers than it would be a squad of U.S. Marines. That's quite a compliment. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> but we did. We had them. Yeah, yeah. We had them licked. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 uh, did you ever come in contact with the NVA or was it all Viet Cong? No, there were some firefights with the NVA. Um, one of them uh, was very difficult. Um, that was later on in October 68 when I was in the 5th Marines. Uh, my best buddy, David Lopez, who had been my a gunner, my assistant gunner mm -hmm. in uh, 227, um, was there with me and others. And um, well, the operation was that there was a special forces camp, this Thong Duck special forces camp up at the southern end of the Ashaw Valley and not too far from, I think it was Cambodia. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were getting overrun. 
and they were crying for help. Mm-hmm. Well, we were already in a firefight in a place called Gornoy Island, which is called that because this section of land is kind of cut off by rivers. So it's surrounded by rivers mm-hmm. and everything. And we were actually in a firefight then. Excuse me. And uh, they pulled us out of that firefight, sent us up Highway 4 to this Thong Duck Special Forces camp, and we never made it. Mm. We got hit, and we had to get off the road and go through these hills. They were big hills, mm. but they were hills. And uh, to try and uh, suppress this enemy activity that was trying to kill us all on the road. Mm. So we were off the road, we were in these hills, and then we got trapped in the hills. Mm. By NVA? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got mortared and rocketed every night on these hills. Um, I called it Maggot Hill, the one we were on. Because uh, we spent three days up there, no resupply, no food, no water. Luckily, it rained every day about uh, 5 o'clock, and we could collect water in our ponchos. Mm. Um, Dead and wounded laying all over the hill, Um, maggots crawling all over the place. Um, We had a trash pit that people had been throwing leftovers from their sea rations in. People were down there scrounging for little packets of coffee, cream, and sugar, anything they could Mm. find to eat. Um, and, uh, it was, it was just a mess. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I lost a machine gun team up there. Um, the, uh, the original, um, uh, squad leader of that, uh, squad in the fifth Marines, this is golf two five, um, was on R and R when I got there. And I had taken over the squad. And then when he came back, he took back control of it. And uh, I don't really want to say anything bad about him, but he wasn't, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but he was not as competent as I thought he should be. Mm -hmm. And maybe he was like, you know, people can get shell shock. People can, can, Mm -hmm. right. And he kind of acted that way. Yeah. Uh, he was up in the Waste City. So, I mean, he went through it. Yeah. But it just but, becomes too much for some yeah. people. It really does. Anyway, I've seen it myself. He, he got upset with me. And um, I guess he saw a threat to his leadership or whatever. And he, so he, he set me off to the side of this machine gun position that was on one edge of this hill. And the hill dropped off down into a steep ravine, went back up the other side, and um, there was a trail coming up. And he positioned me to the right of the machine gun position, uh, and then he put the machine gun right on the damn trail, right where if somebody's walking up there in the dark, they're going to step on you. Mm-hmm. What's well, not where you put a machine gun no. position in a mm-hmm. thing like that. If anything, you set them off to the side of the trail and everything. But anyway, and I told these kids, and they were young. I told them, I said, uh, don't open up with a gun at night. Remember every fifth round's a tracer. Uh, 
If you if they if you they're coming up the trail, throw grenades at them, mm -hmm. okay? and you have that big muzzle flash too at night. Yeah, yeah. Right. So uh, what happened was they the enemy started coming up the trail, and these kids got scared and nervous. And they first thing they did was open up with a gun, and they caught a sasswood charge and blew them up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I tried to return. I returned fire from my position toward the trail, but by that time. They were already through the machine gun position and overrunning the hill and everything mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so three days of that. And then on October 9th, that was started on the 6th. On October 9th, my buddy David Lopez, who had been my assistant gunner in the 27th Marines, we both got transferred together to the 5th. Um, my squad leader had issued him a machine gun. Now, David's like five foot one, maybe, mm -hmm. little short Mexican guy. Mm -hmm. uh, when our squad leader got killed, I, I offered to have him take the gun. He goes, no, 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 no. He says, I'm, I'm too little. I can't do that. So mm -hmm. I gave it to one of the other guys. And um, anyway, the enemy came up his side of the hill, which is opposite from where I was. And there was a major push because there was a saddle between the these two hills and the company commander had split the company with uh, second platoon and parts of third platoon on the hill I was on. I was in second platoon and then first platoon and parts of third platoon on the other hill. Well, the enemy came up from this cut at the saddle and attacked both hills at once. Mm. And they caught David with a grenade and blew his leg off. Mm. But uh, did he make it? Did he? Did he? Live? Well, you know, uh, I thought he was. I thought he was going to die. Yeah. I mean, as it, they couldn't bring uh, any helicopters in. Yeah. Because there was uh, a place called it was uh, Charlie Ridge, and the enemy had any aircraft weapons set up on Charlie Ridge, and every mm -hmm. time a chopper tried to come in, they'd shoot the chopper down. Yeah. So there was no choppers coming in. That's why we couldn't get any resupply or anything. Mm -hmm. Well. Thank the good Lord for the first air cav. Mm -hmm. They were the only one with balls enough mm -hmm. to fly in and help us out, drop some supplies and pick up our dead and wounded. And they picked up David and we put him in the chopper and um, and then threw his leg in after him. Mm -hmm. And I just knew he was going to bleed to death. <clears throat> it wasn't until 1980. 86, I think, that I went to the wall, and I looked for his name, and it wasn't there. I was so pleased, mm -hmm. and I contacted some people, and uh, anyway, managed to uh, find him, and mm -hmm. we've been back in touch ever since. Yeah, and, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, we're, yeah. The, we're the best buddies, I tell you. Yeah, those helicopter pilots coming in under, I've seen it myself in mm -hmm. Afghanistan and Iraq, just coming yeah. in under, like, blistering fire to pick people up. Like, it, yeah. it, it takes some balls, it really does. Yeah. Hey guys, it's Kevin. I'm here with Ricky again. We're just going to interrupt this podcast just for a hot second to talk about another one of our sponsors that makes it totally possible, and that is Vertex. The website is vertex.com. That is V-E-R-T-X. Go on that website, use the coupon code FEELCRAFT, and you're going to get 20% off of your order. Here's the thing with Vertex. They make some really, really cool things for the folks out there that want to conceal carry their firearms. Um, organization pockets for spare mags. 
backpacks that let you carry broken down AR pistols. Vertex, I mean, you, if you take a look at our uh, Polaris that we have built out, it's all because of Vertex. Um, it's a really cool design that we have. And uh, Vertex is just one of those companies that makes really functional clothing. I've used this stuff for a very long time, and I think you guys are going to find that their stuff is super functional, comfortable, um, and you're going to see a bunch of us over here at the company wearing it and all the stuff that we put out online. So please check them out. All you got to do is go to their website, vertex.com, use the coupon code fieldcraft. You will get 20% off. And with that 20% off, think of all like the stuff that you could buy. Like Ricky was talking about that black rifle coffee earlier. Use that money to buy more black rifle coffee or something. I don't know. Guys, here we go. Back to the podcast. So once you, once you get to the end of your tour and, um, is there a reason it's 13 months? Isn't it? I thought it was 12 months. The Marine months. Corps does, you have to do one extra month for the Corps. Of course you do. The <laughs> Army, of course you do. The Army yeah. did, did 12 yeah, months yeah. and the Marine Corps did 13 of months. Of course, yeah. That's so Marine. Um, so when you come back, um, what's your mindset like? Uh, and, and, you know, you, you've, you've, it's different now, like, but, but back then, like, it, it was like World War II, you got on a ship and you went all the way back and it took weeks to get home, right? Everybody talks about Vietnam or you're in the jungle and 24 hours later or, you know, 48 hours later, you're in the city, right? In, mm. in America. Was it like that? Yeah. It was. Yeah. The only difference is, uh, and actually this is the main difference between what we experience and what these young guys that have fought in Afghanistan are experiencing. When we came back, uh, they warned us about wearing our uniforms out in public. They warned us of the protests and everything that were going on. Um, you know, they told us, you know, don't react to it. Just try and keep your cool mm -hmm. and go home. Well, I uh, <clears throat> I didn't have anything. My sea bag had gotten ruined. I didn't even have any good uniform. I did have one set that I was reissued in Okinawa before we came back to the States. But I didn't have any civilian clothes. Mm. So I came off uh, out of the airport uh, where they landed us and uh, went out there, and sure enough, there's all these hippies, I don't know what you call them, lined up along the fence there and shouting and hollering, calling us all kinds of nasty names and, of course, the baby killer and all the other crap. Mm. And um, so I hailed down a cab and uh, asked him to uh, take me to the airport. Well, he was a former Marine. Mm -hmm. Well, he was a Marine, just wasn't on active duty anymore. Mm -hmm. And he said, son, he said, let me tell you something. First thing, you got to get out of the uniform and into some civilian clothes. Mm -hmm. You can't travel around safely in uniform anymore mm. um not now so and then he said and don't ever tell anybody that you're a vietnam uh, marine corps combat veteran because they'll eat you alive it's so disgusting it really is oh, yeah. yeah so he helped me a lot and uh, i got some civilian clothes and i went to the airport catch a flight to san antonio texas and um I was really pretty out of it. You know, it's like, I, I know you don't want me to cuss over the airways, so I'll try not to do that. 
but uh, it was like effort, you know. Yeah. W- what are they going to do? Uh, from where I've been, mm-hmm. you can't hurt me mm. physically, emotionally, psychologically. You can't hurt me. Mm. So uh, I was just waiting for the first jerk to get in my face, and I was going to kill him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was. I had been in the business of killing. That's why I never became a police officer because I couldn't separate. Uh, deadly force from, from minimum force. Yeah, from minimum mm-hmm. force. It was all or nothing. And um, anyway, but I, I managed to make it to the airport and fly home and everything. I'm real quiet and I'm getting drunk on the airplane, etc. And uh, my my folks didn't even know I was coming home, and so I got in San Antonio and I called my mom. And uh, she said, why did you let us know? And you know how mothers are. And so I told her I was going to catch a bus and I'd be there because uh, I lived in Fredericksburg, Texas, a little. Uh, actually, the home of Admiral Nimitz, mm. you know, the commander of the Pacific Fleet mm-hmm. in World War II. And uh, so I get in, in Fredericksburg. Mom meets me at the bus station. And... Uh, she says, uh, uh, let me take you to the house. We got to hurry. I got to go to work. And I, I managed to get in enough questions to find out what the hell was going on. And my dad had left. Uh, he was a blinded veteran from World War II. And the medication they had him on, they're actually using it in the cocktail in the prisons to kill people. Phenobarbital, Dilantin. Mm. Uh, and it had turned him schizoid. Wow. And at times he didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, he had left and left her with uh, my younger brothers and sisters and everything. And uh, so I had to deal with that. And then uh, there was a class reunion uh, in town while I was there. And uh, I went to the class reunion. I walked in. Everybody turned around and looked at me. They knew where I'd been. Probably could guess what I'd done. Mm-hmm. And they all turned their backs on me. Wow. You can't relate to those people anyway, right? I mean, you, you've well, nothing in common yeah, but, at that point. Yeah. So at, when they did that, mm-hmm. I turned around and walked away. Mm. I, I never looked back. And I, uh, I was working in a local mill. I had been doing building cabinetry and furniture there in the local mill before I left. And I went back to work there, and even the grown man in the mill would uh, tease me about my Ho Chi Minh mustache and this, that next thing, trying to give me a hard time and trying to get me riled up. Mm. They just didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you play with fire. I, mean, I, I think the way Vietnam, I, I, I know the way Vietnam veterans were treated is a stain on America's past. It right? really I is. I still say that the majority of PTSD in Vietnam veterans doesn't come from the combat. Yeah. It comes from the way we were treated when we came home. Yeah. When you had to bury all that experiences mm-hmm. for in some cases twenty or thirty years. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I when I when I, I I'm a combat veteran too, mm-hmm. multiple times, right? But not not in the same league as you. But um when I, when I had when I was getting out, I had to go see a psychologist, just standard procedure, especially for special operations. And she told me that um 
anger is the only acceptable emotion in our world, right? In our in a in a warrior's world, right? So everything, all empathy and sadness and depression, it all gets funneled to anger, and that's why guys fly off the handle like and really I, really quickly. I still have that problem yeah. today. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it isn't necessarily against people. Yeah, I mean, I can drop a pencil on the ground. Next thing you know, I'm cussing the. Yeah. <laughs> Dang yeah. pencil. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, it just it just, just flares like yeah. you say. And yeah. it's uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm uh I've been married four times and my last wife here, she's left now and um I just I don't know what to do. Mm. But yeah. anyway, you know, tough it up. Yeah. Take one step in front of the other. Mm -hmm. What was your opinion of Westmoreland? Oh, he was weak. Yeah, yeah. He was weak. I, I wish we'd have had a Marine commander in mm -hmm. charge. Yeah. Uh, I wish we'd have had one of the old World War II yeah. Marine commanders in charge. Yeah. And that yeah. war would have been over. That they, yeah. Generals have become politicians, you know. And, oh, well, and he, now. Yeah. Oh, it's worse now. now. There are yeah. no generals no, anymore. There aren't. There aren't. Well, there you aren't. know, I mean... I know I shouldn't bring politics. Now, we're going to talk about our Afghanistan because it has parallels, right? Because um, when you saw Saigon fall, right, and the NVA come rolling up in armor and us taking, you know, people off yeah, the roof yeah. of the embassy and mm -hmm. all that, and then, you know, you turn it back over and, and the the, um, the Arvin fall, right? I, I mean, if the American, the, the might of the American military. All right, let's, let, let's, uh, let's look at history for a second. Mm-hmm. First of all, our military won the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. hands down. Mm -hmm. In uh, January of 1973, there was the Paris Peace Accords, and Nixon had bombed North Vietnam into oblivion, mm -hmm. and they finally decided, okay, we got to quit fighting. No, yeah. uh, we're not going to exist mm -hmm. anymore. And they've admitted that. Yeah, like the the, the the senior leadership of North Vietnam had have admitted since that we were beaten. Yeah, we were done. Yeah, yeah. So they signed the Paris Peace Accords, and in the Paris Peace Accords, the United States agreed to pull all our troops out, and uh, but with the with the stipulation that we would support South Vietnam in beans and bullets and ammunition and and mm -hmm. supplies, uh, should the North start the aggression again. Mm -hmm. Well, six months later, the North, who recognized they had been beat, saw the continued um, disruption in the United States by the American populace. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, shoot, we're going to go, we're going to win this thing. Mm -hmm. So they went back at it. They went up against the Arvins, mm -hmm. the South Vietnamese Army. And we tried to resupply them, but Congress, and I won't designate what party, mm -hmm. uh, voted to discontinue all the, the bills that were aimed to support uh, the Arvins. Mm -hmm. So they lost uh, all the support, material support. They fought for about a year and they were doing holding their own, and then they started out of running out of supplies, mm -hmm. and uh, so by um, the end of '74, um, I mean the uh, 
it looked like they they didn't have a chance, and they didn't. Yeah, and the North, the North Vietnamese are getting yeah. supplied by China. Now, you know, one of yeah. the things that stopped the North from taking over the South earlier was a brave Marine. I think he was a captain, could have been a major. Ridley. And there's a book out about Ridley's War. And there was a major river that ran through Vietnam uh, called the... Well, let me get it straight. I was on the Ha Dong River. So this was the Dong Ha River. and had a big bridge across it. And it was the main avenue from the north to the south into the southern part of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Well, Major Ridley, together with some Arvins, uh, went in to blow up that bridge. And I, I can't honestly remember if he survived or not, but he managed under fire to plant enough charges on that bridge to blow it up. Mm. And that stopped the communist advance, oh, I think probably for six or eight months mm -hmm. until they had a chance to rebuild and come across. And that was why everything went down in 75 rather than 74. Did he he took it on himself to do that or he was under orders? He took it on himself. Yeah, he you, was. Again, you think was, our generals would see he that? He was under orders as a, like an advisor yeah. to the Ar Arvins. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, <laughs> But typical Marine Corps, yeah, I'll advise you. You follow my fire, yeah, and uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Just a, it's a wonderful story if people get a chance to mm -hmm. read it. That's uh, awesome, that, Ridley. That, that's cool. I think the book is Ridley's War. Yeah, but I'm not sure. So, um, so it, then anyway, yeah, with history. So uh, then, Saigon Falls, South Vietnam Falls, and the blasted news media. Even then. Wanted to say, oh, America lost the war. Mm -hmm. You know? Oh, 1975 is when we lost the war. Mm -hmm. Garbage. We didn't lose the war. Mm. 1975 was when the South fell. Yeah. But that wasn't anything we did. No. And in fact, it is what we did through Congress. Yeah. And there was a, a North Vietnamese general that uh, made the statement that, uh, you know, the Americans, you won the war, but you lost the peace, mm -hmm. and that's what happened. Yeah. I, I, so, so let's get that straight, because people want to. Yeah. And there's like I, we were talking about books. There's some of the worst books in the world out there, and one of them is being used by all these colleges and universities to teach kids about the Vietnam War. Yeah. And it's called the things we carried. And oh my goodness, the things we carried, what a wonderful book, you know, and everything else. And I was doing a book signing and someone mentioned it, and have you read this book yet? It's such a wonderful book. Yeah. And I go, no, I haven't. So I decided to pick it up and read it, see what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't get, I couldn't get past, uh, I think I might've got the first chapter under my belt if mm -hmm. I was lucky. I mean... For, I mean, no offense between Army and Marine Corps, mm -hmm. and I know there are differences. So this guy's Army, but he's talking about, oh, everybody walked around calling each other their nicknames, mm -hmm. and we were all this and that. And I mean, it's like, uh, it was, oh, and we carried this and that. 
He wasn't talking about combat. Yeah. He wasn't talking about the Vietnam War. It's like so, uh, like a movie set or something. Mm-hmm. I threw that thing down and and never and that was another reason I wrote this book mm. because there has to be a way for people to find out the truth mm-hmm. of what that war was like. And this does it in spades. This mm. book has been called Raw. It's uh, it's. Been all kinds of names, but I've sold over five thousand copies so mm-hmm. far as a self-published author. Yeah, and I have not one bad review. Yeah, I have cases where um, recently a young boy out of Tennessee at this uh, fair came up to me and he kept coming up, kept coming up, and uh, I said, "Son, um, you know, you're interested in getting a book?" He goes, "Well, I don't know if my grandfather would like for me to get it. He's a Vietnam War." veteran and he's he's kind of nuts and he roams around the woods with his rifle and everything else and you know nobody comes up to our house um without him accosting him in some way Mm -hmm. and um and he won't talk to me about it and um i'm not sure he'd like for me to read this book i said i tell you what i'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen because i have had this happen innumerable times by people reading the book you're gonna get this book and you're going to take it home, and you're going to start reading this book. Next thing you know, your grandfather's going to come over, and he's going to see the cover on the book, which has uh, my uh, Italian flags mm-hmm. and and the uh, wall and dog tags and everything. And he's going to say, boy, what are you reading there? So he's going to look at it with you, and he'll probably look at the pictures, and um, he's going to get interested. And next thing you know, you and your grandfather are going to be reading this book together. And he's going to start opening up to you. (laughs) Two weeks later, Mm -hmm. I get an email from him telling me exactly what I had told him was going to happen. Mm. And so there's this wonderful family reunion between this 18-year-old boy and his grandfather where his grandfather's opened up to him about the war. Mm, that's it just, awesome. Mm-hmm. It, it makes the back the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Yeah, yeah. But that's what's happening with this. Thing. Yeah, I, I think it's important to tell these stories. Like, like I've, I've done a couple of podcasts with, with, like, my boss, Mike, Mike Glover, who was on, we were on the same team, we were in combat together a bunch of times, and, you know, we started talking about it. When, like, these stories have to be told. They, they need to be told, or they'll yeah. be lost forever, you know? Yeah. Um, l- l- talk to me about what's going on now. We just lost 13 Marines, I think 12 Marines and, and a Navy corpsman yesterday. Oh, horrific. Um, but as you see, like weak leadership is weak leadership. And people like the, the the North Vietnamese, people like the Taliban, and I, they smell it a mile away. Russia, China, they all smell weak leadership. And that's yeah. when they push hardest, right? And people wondered where, where are all these Taliban coming from? Well, they're coming out of Pakistan. Yeah, they are. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. In the same so, way they come out of Cambodia right, and right, Laos right, for you. Right, uh, right. It, 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 and, and people who think they know about Afghanistan or Vietnam, they haven't zipped people into body bags, which me and you have done, right? So, uh, the, the Afghanistan is, is is we've been there for twenty years. I've been there twice. The the um, it, it, it's it's a horrific situation. But you, you, you know, leaving, I'm fine with leaving. You don't leave like this. You don't no. leave people behind, and you 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 don't leave billions of dollars worth of but equipment for it's the enemy. Called an- 
It's called an orderly withdrawal. Yeah, and you negotiate and the, from the a position of strength. Do, yeah. First thing you do is you burn and destroy all your yeah. papers, mm -hmm. all your communication mm -hmm. uh, tapes and all that kind of stuff. You don't leave anything like that behind. Mm -hmm. uh, you pull all your equipment out, and uh, and then finally you pull all your men out and one fell swoop, and there's nothing left in the country, mm -hmm. and, and you're out of there, which is basically what happened in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, the troops in Vietnam were pulled out in 1971. The, the combat regiments and everything were pulled out in 1971. Um, by 72, uh, there were a lot of Marines and Army in Vietnam in 72, but they were as... Uh, Support forces, mm -hmm. they were mainly in bases to provide security and stuff like that for the Arvins, mm. um, 72 and 73. Um, I think by 73, at the Paris Peace Accords, all our, everybody was out of Vietnam except the very few advisors, some security personnel at the embassy, stuff like that. But we did have our Navy uh, offshore, mm -hmm. and so we could provide air support for the Arvins because that wasn't anything said about that in the Paris yeah. Peace Accords. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's all we could do for them. Mm -hmm. And um, and in '75, everything happened. In fact, I know one of the Marines who had been Force Recon, uh, who went back to Vietnam on embassy duty, was there at the embassy in Saigon, and he says he was the last. Marine in Vietnam. Wow. Have you have you ever uh, have you ever thought about going back or have you been back? No, I didn't lose anything over there but good friends. Yeah. That country stinks. Yeah. I mean it looks pretty. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know if they're still doing it. They probably are. The people crap in the fields. Yeah. Um you, you know, you've got to be real careful what you eat. Uh it's kinda like Egypt. Yeah. They do the same thing in Egypt and I did some work for the government over in Egypt. And um, I, we were told, don't eat the leafy vegetables. Don't eat the lettuce or anything mm. else like that because mm -hmm. it's going to be full of amoebas and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you you never had the drive to go back. You're like, no, nothing, no. nothing but bad memories, right? No. Yeah. No, because, um, uh, you know, I guess they, they are bad memories. I mean, I can't call them good. Mm -hmm. uh, I try not to let them affect me, but they're with me. I... Uh, I met a guy, a friend of mine, who was on Operation Maui Peak, and that was the one to save the Thong Duck Special Forces Camp. And he was in the only self-propelled 105 amphibious forces in Vietnam. Amphibious. Amphibious. Wow. Yes. Dang. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I remember when we were hiking up Highway 4 to go to that camp, I saw his battery off to the right. And later on, they did give us some fire support. Mm. And, uh, and, of course, anyway, we never made it to Thong Duck Special Forces Camp. Mm -hmm. I mean, we got yeah. stuck on the those hills mm -hmm. and everything else. And mm. uh, how, how long did you stay in the Marine Corps when you come back? Oh, see, I came back in March. I got out in... Uh, August. Okay. So you, you know what the happened was uh, I was stationed at... Uh, a base in Florida, um, Cecil Field, which was a naval air base. But across the road from the naval air base was a secret compound. Mm. 
it was one of those I can neither confirm nor deny mm -hmm. the presence of nuclear weapons on this base. Mm -hmm. And they used the Marines as guards and everything. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the uh, gunnery sergeant in charge of the office um, found out I could do a little bit more than stand guard duty. And uh, he put me in the guard office and everything. And I wound up, uh, my room, the, the office was in the same building as our rooms. And my room was right up the stairs from the office. So I'd go up to, all day long, I'd go up to my room, uh, get a half a cup of coffee or bourbon, and then fill it the rest of the way with coffee and drink that all day long. Mm. Then at night, if I was hungry, I'd eat raw hamburger meat and start drinking again. And I did this over and over and over again just to try and wipe everything out. Mm -hmm. I felt so bad about leaving Vietnam. I felt I had left my men down, leaving them in Vietnam and, and not being there to help them and teach them and all that other kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. um, So I was trying to drown my sorrows or whatever. Um, and then I got to puking on the beach, puking black bile. And I realized, you know, you can't keep going this. You got to mm -hmm. stop. Mm -hmm. So the good Lord intervened and I uh, took a job working from midnight to six in the morning at a gas station pumping gas. And then uh, from six in the morning all day on the base and uh, got some chow and everything. Uh, crashed about six o'clock. Got up at midnight and did it again. Mm -hmm. And I worked myself out of it. Mm. And, uh, um, but it, it, it was tough. So anyway, um, I signed a waiver to go back to Vietnam. I just could not stand being away from my guys. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, uh, I didn't understand civilian life. I mm. didn't understand even stateside Marine Corps life. The only life, I mean, I had, Vietnam had gotten in my blood so bad that that was the place that was home. Mm. This is how you live. This is home. This is what you do. Mm -hmm. So I had none of that. Mm. And so I signed a waiver to go back. And in those days, you, uh, the Marine Corps couldn't send you back to Vietnam for a year unless you signed a waiver. Mm -hmm. So I signed the waiver, gave it to the gunny. And he was going to send it up. Next thing I know, a few days later, he comes to me and he goes, uh, I guess I'd made corporal by that time. He said, Corporal Van Bibber, he said, uh, you know, if I forward this waiver for you and you go back over as a machine gunner, you're not coming back alive this time. This is 69. Mm. So uh, I said, I don't care. Mm -hmm. uh, I died a long time ago. It didn't mean anything to me. Mm. And uh, he says, well, look, I tell you what, I'll give you a meritorious promotion to sergeant. I had just made corporal. But there were some things in my record that I, I should have made sergeant in Vietnam, mm. if you read my stuff. At any rate, um, I'll give you a meritorious promotion to sergeant if you'll re-enlist and stay right here with me. Uh, he said, or I can give you early out because you have less than a year on your initial enlist enlistment 
They got an early out program. Now I can let you out early. Mm-hmm. Well, with my family situation back home, I had been sending allotments to my mom and um, trying to help her out, and they needed me back home. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, give me the early out. I regretted it ever since. I still do. I should have gone back to Vietnam. I don't give a damn if I died over there or not. You know, my guys needed me. And those guys, the guys I didn't even know needed me because I was teaching people how to watch out for booby traps, mm-hmm. how to run patrols and ambushes and uh, come back alive and 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 how to be a combat Marine. That You see, people throw the PTSD thing around all the time, right? And I know personally, like, if people think it's all, oh, I'm so regretful because I killed this guy or I killed that guy. You put me <laughs> on a roof right now, put you back in the jungle, you do the exact same thing. It's Dance the loss. Straight. I yeah. do it today. Yes, it's the loss of sense of purpose, right? It's the loss of this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm, I'm making a difference here, yeah. and this is my purpose, right? And you know, I'm, the worst part for me, I guess, if you want to look at it that way, I was good at it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I ran what they call killer teams, mm-hmm. where we, this was in the 5th Marines, where we, we would get a, a fire team, four people, and then me as a patrol leader. Mm-hmm. And we would take a sniper out, uh, him and his spotter, sometimes with a dog handler. Mm. And we would go out, we would stay out in the bush for like two or three days. And the snipers would do their thing, and we were to provide security for them. Mm-hmm. We we left at night, and we came back at night. Mm. So the locals didn't really know what we were doing. Mm. We were good at what we did. Yeah. I'm telling you what. Mm-hmm. And uh, same thing when I was running night patrols, night ambushes. Uh, mm-hmm. um, early on in this process, uh, I had uh, set up a... Uh, and I, I have a pretty good description of You read it, didn't you? The the description of the night ambush? Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Do the, you think uh, that was... Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, they, they always say that, that you know, the VC owned the night. That's just not true. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, not true. Yeah. No. Um, and if you had, uh, you know, if you were a thinking man, you, you stand a really good chance of survival in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean... I mean, fate is fate. Circumstances could take over. Booby traps. But, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. there were times, mm-hmm. there was one time when uh, I think I was in the 5th Marines. A bunch of boot camps were with me. I was had them out on patrol, and we started catching sniper fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody was getting hit, and the bullets were going here, there, and the next place. And I figured this was some BC out there with his eyes crossed, couldn't see the, hit mm-hmm. the broadside mm-hmm. of a barn anyway. So I stood up in this rice paddy to trying to get a bearing on where he was so I can call some orders on him. Mm-hmm. These young kids were down in the dirt next to me along the dikes and the rice paddy, just trembling. And they're saying, what are you doing? Get down, get down, get down. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, just let me take care of this. Yeah. And so I did. I called some orders in on him. That was the end of that. Mm-hmm. After that, they thought I was God. You yeah, know? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was yeah, crazy. Yeah. But that's what I did. I fought with deliberation. Mm-hmm. And um, and you can't fight with anger. No, right? you got yeah. you got to be a thinking man if you, you want to survive. You do, and you got you got to you got to stack the deck and bring the fight. You know, uh, yeah. you, you know, you got to you got to. Yeah, I bet you you guys put the fear of God in 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 yeah. the VC at night, right? I'll tell right? you about. I don't know. It's hard to call it the worst, 
but was let's just say it was one of the worst firefights I was ever in. Uh, this was the mini tet in in August of '68, mm-hmm. and there they were trying. It was Viet Cong, and they were trying to make it to Da Nang to attack Da Nang, mm-hmm. and they had to cross this bridge called the Cam Lee Bridge, and uh, and the Marines on the other side of this bridge uh, were stopping them. They were fixing to get overrun and lose the bridge, but they were holding their own. They had cooks and office personnel, everybody on the line mm-hmm. fighting. Well, we got called in there, the in Fox Company, and we came up uh, Highway 1 to the Camney Bridge, and... Um, the enemy had withdrawn into a um, copse of jungle, you know, kind of like a little island of jungle mm-hmm. across where these rice paddies were. So we got online and we attacked them and uh, and pretty much drove them out of there. Um, the worst thing that happened there was we lost George Krikos, uh, great Greek uh, he, uh, uh, in the process, because I had lost all my memories of this event, but in the process of writing the book, start, some of it started to come back, and some of it was explained to me by others that were there. But I'm standing on this elevated road. We had our, our wounded and everything on the far side of the road from where the enemy was, down below the crest of the road. Mm-hmm. So I'm standing on this road. The firefight's pretty much over. And a mortar round comes in and blows up George. Blows Mm -hmm. up George. Mm -hmm. And one of my guys, uh, when talking about it, and I asked him if he remembered, he'd go, yeah. He says, I remember you standing on the roads there with pieces of George all over you. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that incident, though, I think gave me I wasn't knocked out. There was no corpsman to complain to. I, mm-hmm. You know, corpsmen are only going to write down if you're bleeding to death. They're mm-hmm. not going to write down if you get a brain injury. Mm-hmm. And I think now I'm suffering from that because I have uh, Parkinson's-like syndromes and stuff like that going on. But anyway, get to get back to the firefight. So that happened. And then two days later, they had found uh, where these these NVA, this was NVA and Viet Cong combination, had gone to. So they sent us, my company, uh, and my platoon, uh, over to form a blocking force at where this village was, and anybody that came running out, we were going to kill them. And so uh, on August 20th, that was August 23rd at the Kameny Bridge, and then August 25th, we heard all this fighting going on and machine guns rattling and all this kind of stuff. And uh, we were told the Arvins were going to take the village. Oh, that's great. So anyway, we're there. Nobody ever comes running out. Uh, pretty soon we get the word. Of, I think it was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We get the word to go in and we have to assault the village. That The Arvins hadn't done anything. They'd pulled these APCs up to the edge of the jungle and mm-hmm. fired into the jungle and that was it. Mm-hmm. So my platoon commander 
Um, and we were already undermanned. Um, he took two squads and my machine gun squad. The remainders of two squads and my machine gun squad. Machine gun squad and the Marine Corps, nine men. When we went into this firefight, it was one, two, it was five. And um, Decker and Ritchie were a gun team. And uh, Dan Nordman and Lopez were the other gun team. And I was trying to operate in between them. So we get online and we go into assault this village and we get caught in an L-shaped ambush. Mm -hmm. And uh, looks like they were going to wipe us out. And then I heard the word, uh, I was on the right side of the assault with Decker, with Lopez and Nordman, and uh, got the call or someone hollered, the gun's down where Decker and Ritchie was. I actually ran across the face of this L-shaped ambush, mm -hmm. stumbling over mud clods, falling to the ground, getting back up and running. Everybody laughed at me afterwards saying, you know the reason Charlie didn't get a bead on you? Because every time they did, you'd fall down. Yeah. Anyway, I got over there. Decker was already dead. He was the gunner. Um, shot up about the face and whatnot. Uh, Richie got shot in the gut. And uh, he was a black guy. He and Decker were just like, I mean, they could have been born from the same mother. Mm. Um, and they squabbled like brothers, too. <laughs> but um, Richie got shot in the gut, and he he died in my arms. last thing he said to me was, Decker's dead. Decker's dead. And he didn't want to. He just kind of gave up his life. Mm. And um, then actual memory-wise, that's the last thing I remember. Well... I did pick up the gun and clear it and get it operational and pick up a bunch of ammo. But that's the last thing I remember until we were putting Decker and Richie's bodies on an APC to mm -hmm. take him out. And that's Decker's the one I identified at mm. Graves Registration. Mm. But in the process of writing the book, I found out some stuff. I found out that you know what a berserker is. I think that was the the Viking in me because mm -hmm. I did. I I really believe I lost it. Mm. And I assaulted the village myself with the M60. I do remember firing it single one-handed. Mm. Um, and I didn't have the tin can on the side to help uh, take the, pr the pressure off the belt. The weight, yeah. So I, I had a... I was holding the foregrip, and I would uh, just kind of do shrug my my left uh, forearm, mm -hmm. and to keep a loop in the belt mm -hmm. so the gun would keep firing. Mm -hmm. And that's about all I really remember, and except for a tank. I remembered a tank that got blown up by an RPG. Mm -hmm. While in writing the book, I talked to the guys that had been there, and uh, I said. Uh, do you remember the tank that got blown up by the RPG? And they go, no. We had a tank that uh, had a mechanical breakdown, and that's where we had our, our uh, where the dock was and uh, the little, you know, where the wounded would go. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, But no, we don't remember anything like that. And then I talked with my machine gun friend out of the first platoon. Remember, we were in second platoon. And uh, he said, yeah, I remember that tank. Well, see, what had happened was there were only, I think, 21 of us that went in this village initially. Mm -hmm. And then behind us came first platoon. And they finished the sweep. And we remained out in front of them. But... um, so they went in other areas in this village, and uh, Tom Thomas, the machine gunner, he remembered that tank. Mm-hmm. And I said, and I finally figured out I had probably wound up, I had lagged behind the assault as it went on through the ambush, and wound up with first platoon, and mm-hmm. made the assault with them, mm-hmm. and uh, because. Uh, the guys that went forward, Lieutenant Jones, uh, he got shot in the forearm. They almost lost his hand. Um, there were several other guys that were wounded, and I never knew that. Mm. I never knew that. Yeah, because you got cross-loaded. Yeah, to another right. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and afterwards, after the firefight, things were so fuzzy in my head that I really didn't know what was going on for a while. And then I got transferred to golf 25 when the 27th Marines went home mm-hmm. but to just to give you a few facts there were 21 of us that went into that village followed by what was left of first platoon and that probably wasn't more than maybe 30 guys mm-hmm. somebody did a body count in the village of the enemy dead. I'm sure they counted women and children as well. Mm-hmm. And there were, if I, I may have the numbers, I can't remember the exact numbers because I found it and put it in a book, but it seems like there were 256 confirmed kills mm-hmm. and there were 21 of us that went in. Wow. Yeah, and it was all on foot. There was no armor. Oh, no, 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 no. This was all foot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those two tanks that Mm. tried to support us, one caught an RPG and the Mm -hmm. other one broke down. Were they Sheridans? Were they they Sheridans? Light tanks probably, yeah. I think. I don't know. Yeah, they probably were. Light tanks, yeah. Not not real vulnerable. Um, uh, Was writing the book therapeutic for you or did it bring back a lot? You know, people ask that of me. Yeah. Uh, at first, being nice, I'd say, yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a couple of years after I wrote the book, and I was out opening up more, and, and mm-hmm. my buddy Adam and stuff that I worked with, I would talk to them about it and everything. But you know what? It isn't. It's not? It's the Does same. Does talking about it not help? Cause it, it's you know? the same thing. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, I still, uh, I met a guy at the VA um, well, he was the guy, uh, Mike Doherty, who was with that uh, self-propelled 105 mm-hmm. uh, unit and at Operation Maui Peak. So I ran in VA and saw his Marine Corps hat, and we got to talking and found out we were on the same operation. Wow. So uh, anyway, we saw each other a couple times at the VA, and one time he turned to me and looked at me, and everybody in Vietnam called me Van, and, and he called me Van. And um, he said, you know, Van, it's been 50 years. This was a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. It's been 50 years since I was in Vietnam. 
I wish I hadn't had one day, just one day out of that 50 years that I didn't, that I wasn't living in Vietnam. I said, man, I know exactly what you talk about. Mm. I'm there every day. Wow. And I still attribute that to the fact that we had to bury everything. Mm. You know, Adam had commented earlier about me telling them stories, and he never knew mm-hmm. uh, that I had been a combat Marine in Vietnam. Mm. I've got, because uh, after, uh, after the Marine Corps and I got out, and I was hated by everybody, and I decided to go back in the service. Marine Corps was cutting back on people, I couldn't get back in. I wound up going to the Navy, and I retired out of the Navy as a senior chief, E-8, and uh, everything. And um, the whole time I was in the Navy, I never talked about it. Mm-hmm. They knew I was a Marine, mm. it was in my records, but nobody had an idea of what I had done. Yeah. And I recently ran into one of my old shipmates and told him about the book. And he freaked out. And he says, what are you talking about? He says, I didn't know you were in Vietnam. I didn't know you had, mm-hmm. were in combat and everything else. And that's just it. You, you buried everything. Mm-hmm. And so how, how, where's the therapy for something you've buried for 30 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might. I might tell these stories over and over and over again. But that doesn't change anything. Mm-hmm. Actually, all it does is... Uh, I start to get nervous. I, you know, I, it, it <laughs> I relived the war. Mm-hmm. I, when I wrote this book, it took me three years to write the book, and I actually relived the war as I wrote the book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's insane. It, so, it really is crazy. There's that, a, that, yeah. I ran into this doctor at the VA recently, wanted me to join his writing club. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I don't have any desire for that. Oh, but it's so good. It'll be therapeutical for you and mm-hmm. everything else. I said, you know what, Doc? You don't know what you're talking mm-hmm. about. I said, have you ever been in the military? Have you ever been in combat? You don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you get some of these guys to write the books, it's it might help them. It might not. Mm-hmm. But I know one thing, that even if they think they're being helped, it's not going to solve their problem. Mm-hmm. No. Yes, it's good for people to open up, and if that's the only way they can open up, but it's not going to help their PTSD, and it's not going to help them sleep any better. And mm-hmm. you know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you do. I do. Yeah. How's the VA been? Oh, <laughs> okay. Another road. Another another whole you know, subject. I mean, you know, it's like with PTSD. They they got these shrinks in there. They don't know no, what they they're don't. talking they, about. They, they, yeah. When I when I like when I left, they were like, "Oh, did you kill people? Yes. Did you see people die? Yes. Did you see your buddies die? Yes, 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 yes." And then I said, "Let me stop you right there. I have absolutely no regrets about anything I did right. in combat. None. Yeah, right. I do it right now. You put me in there, right. right? And so they're like, "Oh, no PTSD." I'm like, "Good. I'm good with that. You know." Right. Right. Um, but I I know guys that they, they just throw meds at them and and one man. Oh no, freaking, no meds. Oh my no god. Meds. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's. I had to go. I had. Spent like a couple of years with this stupid shrink over at the VA on this PTSD thing. And he was bugging me about my, uh, what he called uh, hyper... Sensitivity or... Hyper sensitivity and everything. And Mm. I said... uh, well, I guess I am. I'm aware. Mm-hmm. I'm always aware. Yeah, they're like, do you sit with your back to the wall? I'm like, doesn't yeah, everybody? <laughs> you got it. You got it. Yeah. And I just watched a movie the other day where this is uh, 
cowboy movie, and this guy was getting shot at, and he he was in the open, and he he ran over and got in the chair with his back to the wall. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would have done. <laughs> anyway, um, so finally we had to agree to disagree, and he was trying to say that well, you know we. We operate out of statistics. So what are the odds of anybody coming up to your house in the mountains and uh, harming you or your family? You know, you don't need to to be on guard all the time. I said, well, I tell you what, how what is the percentage of uh, danger for a person that gets attacked and killed by somebody that just drives off I-40? That's 100 percent, isn't it? He goes, well, yeah. Well, that just, that happened. Mm. Not a mile and a half away from my house. Mm -hmm. I live pretty close to Mm -hmm. I-40. These two druggies pull off the highway. They uh, went up to this farmhouse and they killed the grandparents. Uh, They killed the parents and they killed one of the daughters as she was cowering in the bathroom, blew her away with a shotgun. So you tell me what the odds are. Mm So, I don't want to hear your crap, and finally we agreed to disagree, and I walked out of there. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Crazy. Um, All right, so this this has been... I could talk to you for hours. I really could. Um, But but, uh, Valentine's Day, A Marine Looks Back, wonderful book. Um, Once we get our store up and running in Aberdeen, need to bring you guys out and do a book signing maybe, you know what I mean? And and, uh, bring some people, maybe at the the grand opening or something like that. I, I think... You know, um, honest, honestly, uh, Chuck, I, I think looking back and wishing you'd been back to Vietnam again, I, I, that road leads nowhere, man. You got to let yeah. that stuff go. I you know, know I, 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 I've been, I've been in combat quite a bit too, right? So I, I just, I, I try not to. And then when I, I never told anybody, any, my wife didn't know anything because. You know, you go to Iraq, you go to Afghanistan, she needs to believe that you're over there watching movies and playing video games, right? Right. Um, but when I came back and when I start working at Fieldcraft, I start opening up a little bit more and, and, and telling a little bit more stories. And, and honestly, I have two two boys and two girls. One of my daughters is the one that's most interested, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I, I think it's good to get it out there. Yes. I, I think it is. And and for history, right? We all, yeah. you You grew up listening to war stories about World War Two, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I grew up listening to war stories about World War Two and Vietnam, and, and then the next generation are going to listen to war stories about the Afghanistan and Iraq right. and Vietnam. I, I think these stories have to be told because you can't, the, the, the average person thinks everybody who went to Vietnam smoked dope and, and protested and came back and was a complete shit show when they came back. And that's just not the case. Not it's the just case. not. There were warriors in Vietnam who crushed the enemy and they weren't guys who were freaking peace protesters and fucking. It, it just it burns my ass, well, you know. We're still warriors. We are. We did not yeah. give that up. And we will not give that yeah, up. Yeah, we won't. And if we're needed. Yeah. We will fight yep. again. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, freaking cowardly politicians are not the, yeah. the American you know, fighting spirit. Uh, people ask me. I, I meet people at the book signings, and uh, it'll be somebody, uh, oftentimes a woman, who has a an uncle, or maybe their husband, or or uh, someone in their family who was in Vietnam and won't talk about it, mm-hmm. and. The whole story goes, well, you know, my Uncle Joe went to Vietnam, and he came back, and he was different, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. So I applaud you 
for opening up to your family. Mm -hmm. The last thing you need to do is bury anything from those that love you. Mm -hmm. They need to know why you are the way you are, mm -hmm. and you are the way you are by and large by the because of the combat you were in. And, and me, me keeping it from my family was not that... I, I didn't think they could handle it. I just, to me, there were two separate worlds. Yeah. That was yeah. th this world and this was this yeah. world and there was no cross-pollination, right? I, I just needed to separate the right. two. Well, while you were in, yes. Yes, yeah, but, but now, now. I'm talking mm -hmm. now. Yeah, but now, so, yeah. So uh, these people will be interested in the book and then I'll tell them, I'll say, you know what? You're the person I wrote this book for mm -hmm. because you need to know what combat was really like for those that fought in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Army and the Marine Corps, we all pretty much went through the same thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they'll get the book. And I'm telling you what, I get email after email from these people thanking me. Mm -hmm. You were talking about having a book signing with you. I went to um, uh, Lejeune. Um, did a book signing in the uh, Dunkin' Donuts place there. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my friends out of the Marine Corps, his wife was a manager there. And it's a Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of Marines in there with their girlfriends and whatnot. And uh, getting, you know, treating them and stuff and buy, buying the book. And uh, most of them were scheduled for deployment. Mm-hmm. Well, this one young couple, he bought the book for his girlfriend, or actually his fiance, um, to give to her before he left. And um, they were very happy and to get the book and whatnot. And I told him, I said, read the book. There's some combat tips in there you may very well need. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> I don't know how long it was, maybe a couple of months later. But I get an email from this girl because my email address is on the bottom of the card that I give with all the books. Mm -hmm. And she thanked me profusely for writing the book. And, and she said it helped her so much. And she was so nervous about her guy, her Marine, going into combat. And uh, she just, she was so nervous. But she said after she read my book, she didn't feel nervous anymore mm. because what was in the closet in her mind was now out in front of her, yeah. and she knew that he would survive. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That, yeah, that it makes it worth it right there, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I will tell you, those Marines that are in, in Kabul right now, securing the airport, they're the same Marines you fought with. The same fighting spirit, the same warriors. I, I wish I was it's there It's just with a them. different generation of warriors, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, wish, I wish that whoever's running the Pentagon would uh, get rid of their politics yeah. and act like generals and leaders and uh, do what needs to be done regardless of what this stupid government has yes, to say. Yes, it's, it's, yeah, freaking horrible. Um, Chuck, it's been an honor. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks. And uh, I really enjoyed it, and I look forward to seeing you again. Oh, same All here. Right. Thank you, sir. All right, thanks. Mm -hmm. Take care.